This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. My oh my, how the world has changed since we last released an episode. And I know in my life, podcasts are welcome now more than ever. For those listening, in the day of release, we're talking about mid-March 2020, the height of coronavirus, COVID-19 mania, and very, very trying time for all of us who are largely confined to our homes, certainly where I live in Maryland. Synagogues closed, schools closed businesses closed and really all we can do is be at home be with our loved ones and hopefully learn and grow as people before i jump into today's episode an important announcement we have a wonderful sponsor this week and that is kosherwine.com you know as we are sitting here again confined to our homes with only a few weeks left till pesach till passover and we don't want to get out there to the grocery stores, to the liquor stores, but of course we need our wine. We need to prepare for our seders, whether it's going to be two people or, God willing, many, many more if this shall pass in the near future. Kosherwine.com is a one-stop online shop for all kosher wine needs. They have an incredible selection, one of the largest arrays out there. And more than that, if you go today to a special website, you will get a $25 wine voucher. Good for anything on the site. You go to kosherwine.com slash Jews you should know, and you will get $25 off your first order. Hard to beat that. An incredible offer from the good folks at kosherwine.com. This week's episode, we're featuring a really interesting person. Most of you out there probably don't know too much about the Portuguese Jewish community. And likewise, you may or may not know much about composing and conducting classical music. Well, today you will learn about both. Alvaro Casuto is a world-class conductor as well as a composer of renown. And he's also a Portuguese Jew with a fascinating family history, hundreds of years of history in his native country of Portugal. And a really, really interesting conversation. Nowadays, of course, this coronavirus has really underscored for all of us just how interconnected, how global our current world really is. And we're going to have a couple of guests coming up, this one included, who represent various streams of Jewish life all over the world. So I think you'll really enjoy both today's interview and those coming up shortly. A reminder, as always, to... Please share our show, subscribe, and show others as well how to do so. Follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. And now to our conversation with Portuguese composer and conductor, Alvaro Casuto. We are here with Alvaro Casuto a conductor and composer and a Portuguese Jew 
How are you? Fine, I'm fine. Uh, I hope What? you are doing well too. So I must say you are the first Portuguese uh, person we're having on our show. Very exciting. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background. Well, first, let me tell you that my ancestors lived in Lisbon, in Portugal, in the 15th century. The king of Portugal, John the first, the second, in 1482, gave permission to a man called Isaac Casuto, who lived in Lisbon, gave permission to open a door to the facing the Jewish quarter of houses which he had bought 40 years before. The document is kept in the archives, state archives in Lisbon, and it's of July 1482. And um, this Isaac Casuto had bought the houses 40 years before. I mean, it's a very detailed explanation in the permit, and it's very interesting how respectful the king addressed a citizen, a Jewish citizen, and it's in the document it said that he was a Jew. And um, so I'm very proud of having 500 years of history behind me, although then came the Inquisition in 1492, and uh, all the Jews were, of course, uh, expelled. And probably my ancestor was uh, emigrated somewhere else. And then the Casutus were found in Livorno, where my ancestor came from. Then my, uh, in the 18th century, uh, a branch of the Casuto family moved from uh, Livorno to Amsterdam, where my great-grandfather was born in 1808. And um, in my, his name was Yehuda Casuto. And um, he married a Sephardic lady, or, uh, was an, uh, also of Spanish origin and uh, moved then from Amsterdam to Hamburg, where my grand great grandfather was born, Isaac Kasutu, also. My grandfather, Yehuda Kasutu, my father, Isaac, but that was his Hebrew name, Alfonso Kasutu, and I was born in 1938 in Portugal after they had moved from Amsterdam to Hamburg. And then from Hamburg in 1933, when the Hitler regime took hold, they moved to Portugal to wait and see how things would develop and obviously stayed in Portugal. Unfortunately, stayed in Portugal because many members of my family were killed in Auschwitz. Is there any relationship to Umberto Casuto, the Italian uh, rabbi? 
He was from another branch of the Sudo family who came from, uh, my ancestors came from Livorno in this 18th century, from Livorno to Hamburg. But he lived in uh, Florence. And when Florence there is not his son, Nathan Casuto is the, has the name of the um, synagogue in uh, Livorno, which is very well known. It's a, a very important synagogue in Italy. And uh, I met his grandson, who is my age, in Jerusalem when I went there because I was music director of the Ranana Symphony Orchestra in Israel for a while. And so I went to Israel uh, on a regular basis. And um, on one of the occasions, I met David Kasutu, who was the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. And he showed me around, and my wife and myself, and we visited um, a number of places. It was very exciting. What was your Jewish background like in Portugal? My Jewish background, in what sense? Religion? From the religious point of view, or what? And just in terms of the education, you know, what was, what was Jewish uh, life like in Portugal as you were growing up? I didn't have a, a very thorough Jewish education. My family, my grandfather and my grandmother and my father were very observant Jews. But of course, um, the World War II and the emigration to Portugal um, uh, placed a big burden on them, and they didn't they didn't fit very well into the Portuguese community. In the Jewish community, because the Portuguese Jewish community here in Lisbon is basically of Moroccan origin. The Jews who emigrated from Morocco to Portugal in the mid-19th century are still the leading part of the Jews in Lisbon, the Sephardim, and my father and grandfather were from Hamburg and had a quite different education. Also, they pronounced or the Hebrew words in a different way because they had the, the um, uh, tradition of Amsterdam and London with the way they pronounced the Jewish words. And the Moroccan had uh, their own way. So there was a clash between my family and the local families here. And my father was very, a very stubborn person. He, he had, was very respectful of his ancestry and uh, was very, he, when he was a young man and in his teens, he um, did a lot of research of Jewish names at the Hamburg um, uh, Cemetery and published, at, when he was 17, he published his first uh, essay about the um, Portuguese Jews of Hamburg. And um, he was um, very much involved as a young man in, in Jewish life of Hamburg. 
And so he thought that he could bring his experience to Portugal and didn't realize that the Portuguese way of life and looking at Judaism was quite different of his own one. So, it's not, I mean, he was basically a German in Portugal, where Port, and, and the Portuguese Jews had the Portuguese tradition, and that didn't go along very well. So, I was sent to an English school when I was a child with my sister, when I was four, because it was during the war. And my father didn't know whether they were going to stay in Portugal or go to the United States or to one point they thought to move to Argentina, but that didn't materialize. So um, I was sent to an English school because they thought, well, uh, English is an important language. And uh, my grandfather was a, um, a translator, professional translator of seven or eight languages, like his father and his grandfather. So there was a tradition of speaking many languages in the family. And so I went to an English school from four, four to seven, then to a French school from seven to 12. And then I went to the Portuguese school when they finally decided my father decided to stay in Portugal, to the Portuguese school, and uh, I went to law school because my father thought that I should have an honest profession, and I thought that um, law was an open opening the doors to a variety of possibilities, and one of them I was very interested in was that to become a diplomat and to use my four languages, which we spoke German at home, uh, spoke English at school and French at school and Portuguese in, uh, in the city. So by the time I was 10 years old, I spoke four languages fluently. And um, so I thought, but then uh, I had a lot of time of my, for myself and I, I studied piano and the violin with the, with the family. My grandmother played the violin, and my grandfather, no, my grand, grandmother played the piano, and my grandfather played the violin. And so they taught us, my sister and myself, and then um, I, I, I followed my instinct and uh, developed my interest in music rather than in my law studies, but I graduated from college and uh, have a degree in law, and that was very helpful also in my musical career in Portugal because um, I was a very uh, sort of very unusual item at the university because I was a conductor and a composer, and I was the only one at school, and uh, so. I had a few friends who helped me quite a bit when I became professionally involved in music. What about music was attractive to you? Well, uh, I wanted to become a composer, and I started as a composer. And I was introduced to the musical world through a symphony which I composed at the request of a leading conductor in Portugal when I was 
18 years old and um, um, I was uh, very interested in 12-tone music in the avant-garde of the 60s. Um, this was in 1959. So this um, first symphony, which I wrote in 59, was um, uh, performed and it was the first work by in 12-tone uh, system which was developed by Arnold Schoenberg. I don't know if you are familiar with, with Arnold Schoenberg and uh, Anton Webern and Alban Berg were the, the trio of leading composers who lived in Vienna in the uh, beginning of the 20th century. And um, so um, I was the first Portuguese composer who wrote 12-tone music which was very unusual and was a, a subject of a lot of publicity and articles in the newspaper. So I became quite famous when I was 19 or 20 years old. What, what is that exactly? What is 12-tone music? 12-tone music is atonal music. I mean, music in the 19th century, 18th century developed with tonal music in C major, D major, F major, whatever, uh, with different different keys. And this developed over the times into uh, composers who went farther away from the tonal center of music. If you have that piece in C major, the C is the major key, and all is based on this the one note, which then develops into various alternatives. When you take this away, then you have an open world, and you can go into any direction, and dissonances become part of the development, and music becomes quite, um, how should I say, quite uh, alien to the normal ear. And that is what uh, made the music of the 20th century, the music of classical world, so alien to the big audience. And that is why today uh, classical music is a subject for elite and not for the large public. Most of the music that you hear, popular music, has is tonal music, has a key. It's in B major or C major or F major or minor or whatever, but it is written in a different uh, different keys. Atonal music and therefore twelve tone music is that each note is equal to every other note. And that creates a big confusion in the ear of um, people who are used to uh, classical music. Uh, classical, what by classical I mean the music of the 18th century, the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th, and when it developed into different regions. Why do you think you were attracted to music? I was drawn um, into 12-tone music for a very simple reason. I, was, I spoke German at home. 
So I read many books in German and I read many books about music in German, not in Portuguese, because in Portugal there was not, not uh, the number of people interested in classical music was very, very small. There was only one orchestra in Lisbon and one orchestra in the whole country. And uh, when I would, uh, grew up, so and uh, so it was very, very limited. And there were no books written in Portuguese about music. So I read books in German. And one of I ran into one book which was published in Vienna in the beginning of the 50s uh, about 12-tone music. And I became excited about the idea of doing something that no one else in Portugal did. I wanted to be different from everyone else. <laughs> and I was different. And, quite successful at that. So um, I felt that it would make a difference if I wrote 12-tone music rather than conventional tonal music, and which was true. So, But then, uh, little by little, when I developed my conducting career, because uh, I was interested in writing for the orchestra, so I became acquainted with the orchestra and with the different instruments quite early in my life because I didn't like the violin, I didn't like the piano. I was enthused and enthusiastic about the orchestra, the orchestra as an instrument, not and the components of the orchestra and what could be made out of an orchestra, how it could be developed and how it could sound. And so I then, it was a, a very easy step to become a conductor. I was, when I was 21, I was asked to conduct a concert, including my own music, which I did. And um, so um, then I realized that I could make a living becoming a conductor rather than a composer, because as a composer, you cannot really make a living. Um, you can, uh, unless you are one of the very few tops, like um, a few composers, Stravinsky became rich in the course, but um, then he wrote works like The Rite of Spring and Petrushka and works which became the mainstream of the classical music of the 20th century. That's a different story, but I wasn't in that league as a composer. And so I decided that I could make my living as a conductor, which I did. And so then I realized that my opportunities, professional opportunities in Portugal were very limited. There was only one orchestra. And so I had to wait one a year until I was invited back to conduct another concert with the same orchestra. So I decided to apply to different competitions and I went to the Metropolis competition in New York and um, I was um, then offered uh, a position as I didn't win the a prize. There were three pr first prizes, uh, but um, I got to meet uh, the director of the Little Orchestra of New York and through another person in Portuguese lady who lived in New York, I met uh, 
Leopold Stokowski, the director of the American Symphony Orchestra, who invited me to become an assistant conductor of the American Symphony in New York, which made me move to the United States. And then I went to Tanglewood, where I participated in the summer festival with the Boston Symphony. And um, I won the Kusevitsky Prize, which was the leading prize for young conductors in the 60s. And um, that opened a lot of doors. I conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra. The, and so I made my home in New York. And uh, when later Portugal had, had a revolution and democracy was established in Portugal, I decided to apply for a job in the United States. I was offered a position at the University of California in Irvine to be in charge of the orchestra and as a lecturer in music. So I went to Irvine, California, and accepted the position as lecturer in music. After a year of my work, I was promoted to full professor with tenure in California. But I decided I wouldn't stay there because um, I wanted to be part of the development of American in, uh, music in the United States. So um, I accepted the position of music director of the Rhode Island Philharmonic. Uh, I was spent there six years. And then I was invited to become music director of what was called the National Orchestral Association in New York which uh, was an organization that joined, selected the best young musicians who every year graduated from the leading music schools in the United States and assembled them in New York. And the concerts were in Carnegie Hall. So I had a tremendous exposure in Carnegie Hall uh, every year with six concerts which were highly uh, appraised by the New York press and uh, then unfortunately they ran out of money but on the other hand I was asked to establish a new orchestra in Portugal so I had a variety of jobs on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean in Portugal and in New York in the United States and then of course uh, I had many guest engagements uh, conducting in Germany and Poland and Russia and Argentina and you name it, all over the place. What makes a great conductor? What qualities do you need to be a, an excellent performer in that particular role? And just another reminder to go to kosherwine.com slash Jews you should know for a $25 voucher off your first order. Again, kosherwine.com slash Jews you should know. <laughs> yes. That's a good question. Yes, it is a difficult answer. Well, first you have to have uh, very good ears and you have to be able to deal with human beings because an orchestra is made up by human beings and you have to make, convince them that you are right. And that they all have musical education and they are all ex excellent uh, musicians in their own right. So they have their own ideas about music. 
and you stand in front of them and you tell them, no, sorry, I don't like what you are doing, I want it different. So uh, that creates immediately an, a conflict and you have to turn a conflict into a positive attitude. You have to convince them. And this is something that comes, has to come from within you. You cannot decide, I'm going to make a bad face at this musician because I don't like what he's playing. I don't like the way he's playing. It has to come from within yourself. And it's like um, saying, there's no chance to make a second first impression, right? The first impression is everything. It's the way you stand on the podium. You walk to the podium and then already the musicians will have decided whether they would follow you or not, just by your attitudes. So it's something that you cannot really learn. You have it or you don't. And you have it to a certain degree or to a little degree or to a high degree. It's like politicians. Why is one politician convincing and another politician is not convincing? It's because his, the way he says the same things, he may say, they may say all the same things, but in different tones, in different ways. And that makes one politician convincing and another politician not convincing. It's the same with conductors. Um, you can have a very good education, but if you don't come across as being a leader, you never get there. So you cannot really learn it through a course. You cannot say, make this gesture or make that gesture, or hold your baton in this way, or don't use a baton at all. It's something that you have to develop yourself on the basis of very unclear principles. And it's like, uh, why you as a rabbi have the following of your community? Why do you convince your community to listen to what you were going to say? And why is another rabbi who has the same education as you does not come across to the audience. You see what I mean? Yeah. And uh, if, if you can say, if you can, can explain what makes you a convincing rabbi and what makes another colleague of you who also educate, uh, was educated just like yourself a not convincing rabbi, then you have the secret of what makes a good conductor and a not good conductor. What's the main role of a conductor? Is it more during the show itself, the performance, or is yeah. it really much more about the practice leading up to the performance? Listen, it's very simple. In the rehearsal, you can explain to the musicians what you want. You can stop the orchestra and say, excuse me, you know, it's too loud, or it's too soft, or I don't hear the oboe. I need to hear the oboe louder. I need to have less brass because less brass is overpowering the orchestra. Or the timpani are much too loud or much too soft or something like that. In a concert, you cannot speak. You have to do it by gestures. 
you have to convince the musicians and the rehearsal is just a preparation for the concert so in the rehearsal you stop whenever you need to stop or you can do as Mr. Karajan in Berlin, the music director of the Berlin Philharmonic, who was one of my teachers, um, made it a point of stopping the orchestra and saying again. And then uh, he would stop the orchestra again and say, no, that's not what I want. Please, let's do it again. And then a third time he said, let's do it again. And uh, I was working with his assistant in Berlin, and I asked his assistant, I don't understand, he stops the orchestra all the time and says again, 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 and never says what's wrong. And he said, yeah, but that's his secret. You see, he does not want his musicians to become obedient musicians. He wants them to question themselves and ask, what? does he want? And then they find it within themselves, the answer, and then it becomes really convincing rather than being uh, people who just follow orders blindly and don't do it from their own conviction, but just because they are told to do it this way. And he wants the musicians to develop their own initiative and that's what makes the difference between his orchestra and other orchestras which don't have this attitude but then you have to be really a very unusual conductor and have a very strong personality to say no that's not what i want no that's not what i want no what's what without running into the conflict that the one musician stands up and says hey what the hell do you want after all? You're saying no, 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 but you don't say what you want. No, you won't do that. Really an interesting approach. And I think something that could be applied to other disciplines as well. How did your Jewish identity develop throughout this time? You mentioned that at some point you ended up in Israel. Did you get connected more to your Judaism over time? Well. To tell you the truth, I had a very th thorough education of, uh, with Jewish principles at home because my, as I said, my father and grandparents were observant. But um, personally, my attitude toward Judaism is my heritage. I am 100% Jewish from the heritage point of view, because I know that I belong to a family or to ancestors who for millennia fought for their survival in a non-friendly world. And um, that uh, the Inquisition kicked them out in Portugal, had Hitler and the Nazis killed my family in Germany. And um, so I feel very strongly about Jewish traditions as a part of the world of Judaism, but not in the strict religious sense, because as a rabbi, I'm sure you have 
questions to yourself that you don't have answers for. And I, I have, I don't have answers, but you as a rabbi, you have to find answers for your community. So I'm part of the Jews. Culturally. Yes, my wife says culturally. Yes, I'm, I'm part of the, of Jews, Judaism, in, in, in many ways. And I'm 100%, I recognize myself 100% in terms of where I come from and what I want to be in, on this world, a Jew, yes. What was your experience in Israel? What was that like? In Israel, I felt great because um, everyone uh, accepted me as being part of Israel. They, everyone said, this is your country. This is part of you. You have to stay here. You have to come here. And, and I was very, very well received in Israel and was very happy. And then I had a, a positive aspect that my name was known all over the place. Because the rabbi who uh, published the a, a modern version of the Bible Kasutu it was known, is known as the Kasutu Bible, and it is taught to every child in every school. From childhood on, they are familiar with the Kasutu Bible. So my name being Kasutu was very unusual for me, and so I, I was very well received and very happy in, in Israel. But then I developed an, a lot of activities in Portugal. I was asked to found a number of orchestras here, and uh, I couldn't be in two places at once. So I decided that uh, I should stay in Portugal, that my family lived here rather than in Israel. And although I identified very much with the people in Israel, I, I was born here, I lived here, and I had my world developed in Portugal. When I was in the early 20s, I became the principal conductor of the leading orchestra in Portugal. So I had obligations that I couldn't relinquish just over the place and move to Israel. That wasn't my concept of life. And uh, I'm very happy in Portugal, although I'm... I miss the world outside of Portugal because, uh, how would I say, it's always the grass is green on the other side, right? <laughs> so, as a, as a Portuguese citizen, I'm very much aware of the shortcomings of Portugal. It's a small country. It's a country that is not as developed as the United States. It doesn't have as many opportunities, professional opportunities for people. People become very defensive about themselves in Portugal because uh, if you have a job there and a good job, then everyone hates you because you have something they don't have, right? And they become, they want to have the same things as you do. So, uh, and it's not uh, like in the United States. In the United States, I felt very much at home because when I moved to New York, I had uh, and uh, was part of the Dimitri Mutropoulos competition. There were other young conductors of my age in the early 20s who were competitors also. 
and there was one who came from Alabama, and um, I realized that he was totally lost in Manhattan, and he didn't know how to go, go get around. How can you see the 23rd Street or 42nd Street, and so forth, you know? And um, I realized that as a European citizen, with familiar with European cities like Berlin and London and Paris and other cities, I was very much at home in New York, and I also had the support of other people who helped me in many ways. And there is a lot of openness to young people in the United States, a lot of uh, support for people who show some talent and interest, and uh, which is not very familiar with among small countries where competition takes place and where competition uh, creates antagonism. But then, you know, uh, this is part of the world. I'm, I know many countries and I know many different ways of living. So uh, we have to adjust to what we find in our environment. Well, it sounds like you've been in quite a few environments in your life. And I just want to close by asking you, where can people find some of your music or see some of the symphonies that you've conducted? Can you see? No. Uh, holding up a CD. Beautiful. Alvaro Casuto, Return to the Future. Yes. <laughs> Are you conducting on that? Yes. And is I, that your compositions or just this, conducting? I record for Naxos, which is one of the leading music recording companies in the world, who, which is particularly interested in works by composers who are not part of the mainstream. And so I started this project 10, 20 years ago with the Portuguese Symphony Orchestra in Lisbon. And I have a, a number of records which I recorded with international orchestras of Portuguese music with the Royal Scottish. This is with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. And I conducted one with the London Symphony and with the Bournemouth Symphony and Liverpool Philharmonic. And I have more than 30 records on the Naxos label. You can see it in the internet on Naxos. If you click in my name and, and after my name, Naxos, you can find everything that I've recorded for them. And this is my legacy for the future. Because I know that I'm, I'm going to leave this world one day, and uh, this is going to stay. Alvaro Casuto, conductor, composer, Portuguese Jew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for your interest. Are you going to visit us in Portugal someday? And now I have somewhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you have to. It's a beautiful country. It has excellent food and excellent weather, and I hope not very much of the crisis now with the virus that everyone is scared and hopefully goes away. 
So I hope to see you here in Portugal one day, okay? That sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. No, don't forget to let me know. So we can chat a little more and meet you person to person. I look forward. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.